Yes, we're going to read from Exodus chapter 25 this morning, if you would turn there in your Bibles. Again, that's Exodus chapter 25. We're going to read the whole chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half cubit shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it, and you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and two, a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim on the, its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around its handbreadth, a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie, as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold." And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches 
of the lampstand on the one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, one on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Shiloh. Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Phil Adams. I'm on the pastoral team here, and I get the privilege to preach God's word to you this morning. I can't push this down either, so it is solid. We're going to jump straight in this morning, but before we do, let me, let me pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we gather ourselves around your word. God, we thank you that your word is a reminder every day, God, that you speak. God, that you are not silent, God, that you speak into our lives, God, and you speak in with power, you speak in with authority, God, so may our ears be attentive to your voice today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, we're just going to jump straight in this morning. If you've been here over the past number of months, you'll know that we're in a series working through the book of Exodus, and as you've going to have heard numerous times over the past few months in Exodus What God is doing, God is making for himself a people. You'll have heard this being said over and over. God is making for himself a people, a people who are set apart to be light, to be a kingdom of priests to the surrounding nations that Israel are amongst, through whom God is going to reveal himself to these surrounding nations. So we've seen Israel, they've been freed. If you think back to the beginning, they were in slavery and bondage in Egypt. Now they have been freed. From Egypt, we've seen them move through the wilderness, facing many hardships, running out of water, running out of food. They were attacked by the Amalekites. And then two weeks ago in our series, the Israelites arrived at a mountain. They arrived at Mount Sinai, this mountain where God would meet and instruct Moses and the Israelites. And it's actually here at this mountain that the rest of the book of Exodus is played out. So we're going to be sitting at the foot of this mountain, on top of this mountain, until we end this series in Exodus at the end of this month. God has given the Ten Commandments. Two weeks ago, Jimmy walked us through the Ten Commandments. Last week, Ed preached the rest of the law, the Mosaic law. And what I want you to see happening here in the book of Exodus, God is increasingly forming and shaping relationship with his people. God is increasingly forming and shaping relationship with his people. Actually, everything in Exodus, we should read through the lens of God forming a budding relationship between himself and his people. And we see this in in the law, for example. Israel's eyes are being opened to the character of God. 
They've already seen the power of God in the plagues, in the parting of the Red Sea, and now in the law, they're seeing God's character. They're learning who God is, what he's capable of, what he loves, what he hates. And then in chapter 24, which we're kind of skimming over a little bit, you could say God and Israel are making their relationship to one another official. In chapter 24, the, the chapter previous to what Shiloh read, God and Israel enter into a covenant relationship with one another. We see, we've seen hints of this coming forward back in chapter 19. If you remember, God says to Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to you in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, that out of, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you are to speak to the Israelites. And then, as if they are in some kind of ceremony, Israel respond and they say, we will do everything the Lord has said. And what we're seeing happening is, is this official declaration that a relationship has been formed between Israel and God, like a marriage. Israel and God have committed to this love relationship with one another. God's care for Israel and Israel's obedience to God is the giving and the receiving of love. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So when we arrive at our passage this morning, God is taking their relationship, this relationship, one step further. God is moving in to live amongst his people. He's rescued them. He's revealed himself to them. They have committed themselves to one another in covenant relationship, and now God is moving in to live amongst them. The God of the burning bush, the sender of locusts and frogs, the one who can dim the sun with a thought, the turner of the river Nile from water to blood, the pillar of fire, the God who created the water, then commanded it to stand up on the earth, which he made with his words to float in a universe he imagined, then created that God is moving in to live amongst his people. And he's going to live in what's called the tabernacle, which in Hebrew means living place or dwelling place. The tabernacle would be a rectangular tent. They all lived in tents, so tent meant home. God's moving in to live in this rectangular tent in which God would live symbolically in the presence of the people. After being built, it would be set up right in the middle of the, of the Israelite encampment where the Israelites had their tents. And their tents would surround this one tent right in the center. God's home was to be there. God's home was to be the, at the very center of their camp so they would gather their homes around his. And right in the middle, the tabernacle would be the meeting point between two worlds. The, the meeting point between humanity and divinity. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre says that we are the first civilization in history that believes that this world is not the product of the supernatural world. 
He says, we are the first civilization in history that believes this world is not the product of the supernatural world. We are the first civilization in history that believes that we were not created. And so today's message is really a preposterous idea. That of the divine connecting with humanity. That of the supernatural connecting with the natural. Because in our Western world, everything is natural. We live in a closed system of, of chain reactions. Some cells make people, some cells make trees. So the idea that the life of a human being is of greater value than a tree is just a social construct. Which would be absolutely fine if we were okay being meaningless. But we're not. The problem with this disbelief in the supernatural is that our experience speaks to there being something more. In Soviet Russia, during the reign of Stalin, there, there was a, a journalist who got a new job in, a, in a, a newspaper in Moscow. At this time, everything was censored. People were disappearing. People were being taken to prison. People were being executed if they swayed from the government's agenda and beliefs. And this man with his new job came from the countryside, came from a small village, and he comes into the city, and most of the other uh, employees there in the newspaper have been raised in the city, and they begin to pick on this one journalist, mocked him for not being as cosmopolitan and sophisticated as they were until one day he found a way to get back at one of these employees. He was walking through the office, and he found a letter just lying on the floor, and he picked it up, he opened it, and he seen the family name at the top and who it was addressed to, and he knew immediately... Who, the, who wrote the letter. And as he read it, he realized that the person was being open and free and candid and unmasked as he wrote to the family. In the 1920s in Soviet Russia, this was a dangerous thing. But it was common for people to have a public life, a conforming life that would adhere to the government's communist and atheistic worldview. But then when people were in private, they could have a private life where they could speak a little more freely. So as this new journalist that had come in from the countryside read this unfiltered letter, he sees the author is writing very casually and mentions a near miss that had happened in his life recently. He mentions something recent that he was glad that he was able to avoid, and then he flippantly writes in the letter, thank God that didn't happen. And the new journalist knows, I've got dirt on this guy. I can hand this into the police and he's done for. Because even the simplest expression acknowledging God could have been regarded as supporting religion. And I tell this story because even though we don't really know, we don't really know, even though the journalist that wrote this letter may well have believed in God, we also know that even if he did not believe, sometimes to express our life experience, we need to draw from language that points to something beyond the natural world. The heights of human joy in the birth and love of our children is miraculous. The depths of human despair in violence and murder is evil. The awe of stars in the sky or the breathtaking majesty of mountains is magical. Sometimes something or somebody needs thanked. Thank God that didn't happen. We've seen it this week in the presidential debates. Talking about love talking about a force. 
And even when God is ruled out, we speak of karma. We speak of a force. We speak of believing in something real enough to know our lives are not meaningless, but may I suggest general enough that we don't have to make any commitments beyond our desires and give up on our freedoms. And regardless of what we call it, whether we call it karma, whether we call it a force or God, we are all at least a little bit intrigued as to know what is out there. What gives our lives meaning, value, and worth? And as long as we're wondering what is out there, we're going to be longing. Society will be longing, seeking, searching, longing, maybe not publicly, but quietly. What is missing in my life? Why is this world not enough? What is the story that makes sense of this world? What's the answer to it all? Trees do not ask those questions. Advertisements have tapped into our longing and will tell us the answer is stuff, it's experiences, it's relationships. Accumulate the natural world and then it will be enough. But if you've had, had any life experience, you'll know that you could accumulate the world, but your soul will still be empty. C.S. Lewis explains this deep desire when he says, he calls it this, our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. The sense that in this universe we are strangers longing to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. What is out there? What is the answer to it all? And this desire for more, more understanding, more connection, more meaning is what the tabernacle was to stir within the Israelites. The tabernacle was intended to make Israel long for the right thing. It was intended to point them in the right direction. Let me explain this. In chapter 25, verses 1 to 9, Shiloh read, God says to Moses, just after they had entered into this covenant relationship, which we mentioned at the beginning, God says, get everyone to give their gold, give their silver, give their bronze, their blue and their purple linen, their wood, their oil, their incense, their precious stones, and make for me a sanctuary, make for me a, a home, and I will come and I will dwell in your midst. And then first they were to build a chest, and they were to overlay this chest with gold. This chest is known as the Ark of the Covenant. They had to start with this because it was the most important item. It may well be the most important item ever created with human hands. And I think there should be a picture of it coming up, what it may have looked like or what it will have looked like. Inside that chest you see up there, they were to put two sets of the Ten Commandments inside. One symbolizing God's copy, the other symbolizing Israel's copy, and together symbolizing their covenant agreement to commit to one another in relationship and then on top of the chest would be a covering traditionally called the mercy seat. It was the lid. It was the covering. Then on top of this covering or lid stood two cherubim, two winged angels. You can see them there with their wings bent over the top of the chest. Then in verse 22, we read this. God says, there I will meet you. Between the two cherubim that are on the ark, there I will speak to you. So remember that Exodus is, is all about relationship. Relationship between God and Israel. And now God is saying, here, right here, 
on this covering between angels' wings. There I will meet you. There I will speak to you. And then verses 23 to 30, we see there is a table to be in the tabernacle. Verses 31 to 39, there is to be a lampstand in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is to be the home of God. God at home. The lights are on somebody's home. God amidst his people, present in their lives, speaking and eating with them. And all of this, as you read it, harkens back to the Garden of Eden. At the beginning of, beginning of creation, Adam and Eve, humanity, walked with God, talked with God. Eden is called the sanctuary of God, home. The same stones that are used in the tabernacle are mentioned at the, in, to, of being in the Garden of Eden. The lampstand is said to have almond blossoms and branches depicting a tree. And the place is covered in cherubim on the curtains on the Ark of the Covenant, if we remember the cherubim in the Garden of Eden, once Adam and Eve had broke their commitment to God, they were cast out of the garden where a cherubim stood at the gate with a sword in hand. In the garden, it was heaven on earth. God was present. Everything was right. The world was as it should be. There was no longing for meaning. There was no chasm that needed reached over. The natural world and the supernatural world were in harmony. The created walked with the creator, Eden, heaven and earth, and the inner temple was a picture of this. But why is the Garden of Eden showing up in the story of the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt? Is, is this not a different part of the Bible? Is, is the story of the Exodus not the story of Israel's freedom from slavery? And God taking them to their own land? Is that not what God promised Moses way back in chapter 3 of Exodus? He said, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt and take them to their own land. So why is God now coming and dwelling in their midst and reminding them of life in the garden? God is instilling within the Israelites the true story of the world. God is instilling within the Israelites the true story of the world. They, like us, need reminded. They, like us, need the story of the world to be pointed out to us. Otherwise, we will all just get on with our many stories, not knowing the story that glues the world together. Yes, Israel's story is a story of freedom from Egypt, but their story is also part of a much larger story. And now God is opening their eyes to the grander and broader narrative throughout Scripture that humanity is made for relationship with God. We mentioned this at the beginning of the series, that the book of Exodus is part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And Moses wrote the Pentateuch for the Israelites as a way of forming in them their identity, a way of teaching them the truths as to who they are and what the story of the world is. And now the tabernacle was a reminder to the Israelites that as they walked towards their new land out of slavery, that their new land wasn't going to be enough. Freedom from slavery wasn't going to be enough. Because although the tabernacle is a beautiful picture of God forming relationship with his people and him moving in to live amongst them, the tabernacle is also a visceral reminder right in the middle of the Israelites' encampment that something in the world is terribly wrong. 
Because if we zoom out and we take a look at the whole tabernacle structure, we see this come up on the screen. And it doesn't take long for us to look at this and work out that this is not the most welcoming home. (laughs) Something is terribly wrong. (laughs) Because practically nobody could go inside. First you have the outside court, which as you can see is walled off. And then you have a little small door. Then you have the actual tabernacle tent there at the back. And then inside that was another curtain behind which was the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt. What the tabernacle is, is this beautiful system of barriers keeping the Israelites away from God. And the only person that could enter the holies of holies where God's presence actually dwelt was the high priest who would go in once a year on the day, what was, that was called the Day of Atonement. And the reason he was going in there was to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in between the two cherubim where God said he would be. Then the, two priests, or the priest was to get out of there until the next year. What kind of relationship is this? There are two million Israelites who will only ever know about the inside of the tabernacle through the hearing of the instructions read out for how to build it. I thought you said Exodus was God forming relationship with Israel, a relationship of love. Oh no, the barriers, they're there because God's holy. He's, he's so other, he's so infinite, unfathomable, and untouchable. You can't just walk in and talk and sit with the God of the universe. The barriers are there because God's holy. Got it. Well, why are all, there all of the reminders in the tabernacle about the Garden of Eden. Moses was just telling us about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, and he says they used to walk with God. He says they used to talk with God in the Garden. Why can't we? Here are three ways that the tabernacle was to shape the desires and the longings of the Israelites. I'll mention the first two briefly, then we'll spend the rest of the time on the third. The tabernacle, number one, the tabernacle was to instill within the Israelites the desire for a relationship with God. This is what we've already thought about. God dwelling in their midst was to help them lift their eyes from the natural to the divine. It was to remind them of Eden and remind them that at their deepest level, Longing for freedom and water and food and new land wasn't going to satisfy. They were always going to be peeking over the barriers, looking for the presence of God in their lives. The tabernacle was to begin instilling in Israel the true story of the world, not just their story of freedom from Egypt. Number two, the tabernacle was intended to instill within Israel an understanding of the problem. Why can't we go in? The problem is that God is holy. God cannot be in the presence of sin. We have 
seen this in previous weeks that, that Israel complain and they bicker and they didn't trust God. Ever since Adam and Eve loved their own desires more than they love God, the Israelites' hearts and our hearts have had the same disposition to love ourselves more than we love God. And so alongside Adam and Eve, we have been cast out of the garden. We've been cast out of God's perfect presence. That's the chasm. That's the disconnect. That's why the longing in our hearts. Our sin, your sin, my sin has created a chasm between us and the presence of God. Number one, the tabernacle was to instill within the Israelites the desire to be in the presence of God. Number two, the tabernacle was intended to instill within, the, in, within Israel an understanding of the problem. Three, the tabernacle was intended to point us all towards the solution. When we look at the tabernacle, it was a place that symbolized the presence of God. In the holies of holies, in the back chamber on top of the mercy seat, God said, right there, I will meet you and I will speak with you. But as we've seen, the tabernacle was also a place of barriers, a place of boundaries, keeping the, keep, keeping the people away from the presence of God. One thing we haven't mentioned, though, is that the tabernacle was also a place of death. The tabernacle was also a place of death. On entering the outer court, the first thing when you came in to the outer court you would see is this huge bronze altar. Seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. And in Leviticus 6, we read the instructions of how this altar was to be used. If anyone sins and realizes their guilt, he will bring to the priest a ram without blemish, perfect for a guilt offering. If anyone in the whole of Israel, two million people, sins, and then they realize their guilt before God, if anyone breaks one of the Ten Commandments, if anyone rejects God's will for their lives in the simplest ways and realizes their guilt, they were to take a ram, they were to go to the center of the encampment, they were to go into the courtyard, and they were to give the ram to the priest who would kill the ram and let its blood flow out, and then the ram would be cooked on the altar. All for the sake of what it says in Leviticus 6 verse 7, so that atonement could be made. The Hebrew word for atonement is kapor, which means reconciliation. Atonement means reconciliation. It's a word referring to relationship being made right again. We have two million people encamped around one altar for all of their sins. If anyone sins, if anyone rejects God, even in the simplest way, they were to lay down the life of another to make right their relationship with God. They were to let another bear the responsibility of their sin. God would accept the death of the ram in their place, and so all day, every day, the stench of death and blood rose from the tabernacle. When Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden and God's perfect presence, what was placed at the gate? A cherubim, an angel with a sword. Why a sword? Because to try and return would mean death. What the Israelites were doing at the altar in the tabernacle in an incomplete way was throwing the ram at the sword just to get a peek through the gate of Eden. The ram dying in their place symbolically brought them some time 
to in some incomplete way reconcile a relationship with God. But they could only get a peek. They could only enter, they could never enter into the Holy of Holies. They could never go in and sit with God and walk with God and talk with God. The curtain stayed up. The longing continued. The chasm was still in place. But the death of the ram, it meant something. It instilled something in their minds. It created a picture in their minds. Someone might be saying, is this series over yet? Can we get to the New Testament, guys? Does anyone feel that way? I mean, these chapters in Exodus, they're so tedious and long. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he would just have said it already. He would have just came out with the, the meaning of all, all of it in one statement. Bam! Got it. Lunch. <laughs> the reason for the tedious instructions for the tabernacle and for the long chapters and the narratives in Exodus for us is the same reason the tabernacle was this constant, visceral, daily stench in the nostrils and sight of the Israelites. God wanted to instill deeply into their very being particular symbols and shadows. He wanted it to go deeply into their soul. Have you noticed that all around the world there are museums filled with art? What is art for? It speaks. It speaks into our hearts deeply in ways that a statement, bam, can't do. It takes time to wander. It takes time to stir in us, to be instilled in us. And now God desires the same for us in a society grappling with open minds for meaning. He wants us to read about barriers and walls and curtains so we would feel the distance between God and humanity. Sin was not just an idea in the tabernacle. It was a physical wall, a physical curtain for the Israelites that they could not jump over or walk through. And it wasn't in their minds. They just looked at it. They've seen it. God wants us to read about this beautiful room laden with gold and a table with lights always on with two angels hovering over the place that God says, there I will meet you, there I will speak to you. But then God wants us to feel what it would have been like to be told, but none of you can go in. None of you can see it. None of you can sit at that table. It's there, but you can't go in. The constant killing of the rams would have been scorned into the minds of the Israelites. Can you imagine? Guilt and death would have become synonymously linked. The consequences for sin would, have been, would not have been theoretical. The consequences of sin were bloody. And the sense of things being made right with God must have felt doubtful. How would they 
ever have killed enough rams. <laughs> to feel that their sins were really removed. And when they were told, you still can't go in. Even though you sacrificed a ram, you still can't go in. All of these thoughts and questions were to sink deeply into the bones of the Israelites. They are to sink deeply into our bones, like art. So that when it comes to Jesus, we've already have, we already have the categories. We've already got the pictures. We've already got the foreshadows at hand that will not only allow us to understand Christianity as a set of beliefs in a book, but to feel deeply that Jesus is not just an idea, but he's the answer. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, it reads like this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, have this, and we have seen this glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Around 500 years before Christ was born, there was a word that came into vocabulary. And the word was logos. And it's used in this verse for the word word. And the logos was used to refer to the sensing of something that made sense of the world. Just to sense something. It was, refused, it was used to refer to something undefined but felt. It was used to refer to something that would make sense of humanity's need to reach for words to define life in ways that go beyond the natural. It would be, it would be the logos making the birth and love of our children miraculous. It would be the logos making violence and murder evil. It would be the logos making the stars in the sky or the breathtaking majesty of mountains magical. I sense something. Let's call it logos. Then John writes in chapter 14 that the word or the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. With the word dwelt meaning to tabernacle. Jesus came to live with amongst humanity. John directs us back to the Israelites in the wilderness. We need to know about the tabernacle. He points us back to communicate who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. We need to know about the tabernacle. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29 does the exact same thing when he introduces Jesus by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And then when Jesus comes and goes to the cross and it's bloody and the blood drips down from the thorns on his head and his back bleeds from the whippings, Matthew 27 verse 50 tells us Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, Matthew 27 verse 50, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We need to know about the tabernacle. Understanding the tabernacle gives us the framework to understand what Christ came to do. 
God himself, holy and unapproachable, left his throne, came out of the holy of holies, entered the natural world, died on the altar of the cross, making atonement for our sins, reconciling us back into relationship with God, tearing down the barrier of our, of our sin so that we could be restored once again to Eden, where we can now walk with God, talk with God, and be found with him. And so now when you carry that ram, when we carry that ram, that dark sin of yours, that shame that you carry, that guilt that you carry, that life of sin you've lived, and you bring it to God, no more do you hit a wall that says off limits. No more do you hit a barrier that says do not enter. No more are you seen to be said, wait outside. Rather, you look into the holiest of holies, the place where God dwells, and you see Jesus standing there saying, welcome. Lay your sin down. It's been paid for. Lay down your guilt. Lay down your shame. Come in. Come in. Let's walk. Let's talk. Rogers Park, what I want you to see happening here is that God is increasingly forming and shaping relationship with his people. I was speaking with someone once from another country and we were talking about freedom. He was actually about 15 years old. He was saying that you guys in the, in the West, you love your freedom. He said, sure. <laughs> so I said, well, Tell me, you give me one thing that, that, that can be gained by giving up your freedom. And he looked at me without skipping a beat and said, you have to give up freedom to be married and marriage is good. And I said, huh. Rogers Park, you don't have to give up anything to believe in karma. You don't have to give up anything to believe in a force. You don't have to give up anything to believe in something. But karma will never love you. A force will never be in a relationship with you. And a relationship is what humanity is longing. Yes, to follow Christ, you will have to turn from your sin. You'll have to give up the freedom to follow every desire in your heart, but what you will gain is infinitely more. And you will find a different freedom, a better freedom. Freedom in the biblical sense is not freedom to follow every desire in our broken hearts. Biblical freedom from sin is being set free to run through every barrier into the presence of the one that we love. That's freedom. the one that loves us enough to go and die for us. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's not just some doctrinal statement. It's a statement of love. It's a statement of affection. As I would say to my kids, I am your father. You are my children. Don't forget that, what that means. I'm here for you. I will pursue you. I will care for you and love you. I will be your God. You will be my people relationship. This week, church, find some time to be in God's presence. It's your right. It's your freedom. You've been unleashed. 
sit, silence yourselves, shut up. Give yourselves a glimpse of eternity. Feel God's promise spoken over you, over the clutter of your week. Remind yourself of his holiness, his majesty, his otherness. But also remind yourself of that paradox that he's going to walk with you. He's going to talk with you. He's going to wipe away your tears. He's going to get that close. Take some time to remind yourself of whatever mini story that you're living right now, it's part of a larger story where your deepest desire is to be found with God and in his presence. That's what you're longing. That's what you have in Christ. And if you're here today, and maybe this is all preposterous, the idea of the divine connecting with humanity, I'll leave you with this. Maybe C.S. Lewis said it, Right, when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself. God, thank you that you have made yourself known. We thank you that the word became flesh and spoke. God, we thank you that we have your word this morning in our hands. God, we have something miraculous in our hands that's been collated over centuries by, by numerous writers that speaks to us, the word of God. God, may it sink deeply into our souls, God. When we come to church, God, may we be not doing something out of habit or ritual, God, but may we be coming to remind ourselves of the true story of the world, why we're here and where we're going. God, instill at us in, in us today. May it sink deep. May it not be forgotten. And God, this week, may we find ourselves in your presence. May we find ourselves on our knees. May we find ourselves acknowledging you and your holiness and your awesomeness and your amazingness and the miraculousness of who you are. But that you come close. God, that you speak into our hearts, that you comfort us. God, that you wipe our tears, that you love us. Sink it deep, God. In Jesus' name, amen.